you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to the letter to the Galatians. We're going to pick back up from where we were two weeks ago. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word before us be our rule. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may Your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week we were in Luke 17 looking at Christian etiquette, the first rule of Christian etiquette today. We're back in Galatians, finishing up chapter 3 in our series on um, the gospel according to the Bible. For the last two weeks we've been looking at the relationship between the law and the promise. Uh, On the 5th of November we looked at verses 15 through 18 of chapter 3, the priority of the promise, and we saw there what the law cannot do. God's promises to Abraham were made, were kept unchanged, and were ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and thus to all those united to Christ by faith. Those folks receive what was promised. And because the promise has priority over and precedes the law, the law cannot do away with the promise. And then two weeks ago on November the 12th, uh, we looked at verses 19 through 24, the purpose of the law. And we saw there what the law can do and indeed should and does do. The law was added to reveal and expose sin. Paul makes it clear that the law is not contrary to the promises of God. The law kept us in prison as a guard and it kept us under supervision under a tutor. But for what purpose? And we see that at the end of verse 24. In order that we might be justified by faith. And we ended two weeks ago noting that salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we, you and I, all of us will inevitably break, but rather it does rest on a promise that God cannot and does not break. Today we're going to look at verses 25 through 29, the people of faith, the people of faith in the promise. And we see at the end, verse 29, we'll get to it in a few minutes, we are heirs according to promise. Yesterday I uh, was able to see a little bit of college uh, football and uh, a number of years ago one of my favorite teams was all the way out in Nebraska. Tom Osborne was the coach, but almost 10 years ago in January of 1998, he announced his retirement. And in speaking and announcing his retirement, he spoke about his age, and he said he was going to step down, and in doing so, he told a story about visiting a friend of his at a retirement center there in either Lincoln or Omaha, Nebraska, and as Tom Osborne, the former coach of the Huskers, was was walking the halls of that retirement center. He got lost looking for a friend's room. But he saw a lady who obviously uh, lived there, and so he asked her for directions to his friend. Osborne relates the the day, and he says she thought for a, a moment and then said, 
I don't know what to tell you. But if you go back there to that desk, they will not only tell you where you live, but they will also tell you who you are. Today, there is an identity crisis in the church. I'm afraid that identity theft is not just out there with your credit cards and your mortgage applications. There's been an identity theft for Christians. We don't know who we are, and we don't know why we are who we are. Well, our text today will help give us an answer to the question as to who are we and why are we who we are. And we will see that Christians are people of faith in the promise. We're going to start by recalling what has happened. Uh, Join with me as I read verses 23 all the way to 25. Back to 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. But now. Anytime you see the word but in Scripture, stop, pay attention to what has come before and what comes after. But now, what has happened Because Paul is going to say what we are now is quite different from what we were. We are no longer under the law, imprisoned and condemned. Rather, we are now in Christ. Faith has come. Christ has come. We are united to Christ by faith. Faith has come because Christ has come. We're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the law, the law that condemns. Here is a movement Paul is showing from being in prison under a guard and under supervision with a tutor. And we will see, we will move from prison and school, as it were, to the family estate. Because these last four verses here in Galatians 3 are full of Jesus Christ. Now, most folks understand rightly that um, Jesus is the Word, and so every Scripture points to Christ. But here, we're going to see it direct and up front, and you can't miss it. These last four verses are full of Jesus Christ, and we will see that as a result of being united to Christ by faith, we now have three distinct relationships, which will help us understand who we are and why we are who we are. Now that faith has come, Paul is saying, he's going to show us, he's going to show the church in Galatia, his readers then, and he's going to show us now, who we are in three relationships, to God, to one another, and to history. Join with me as I continue reading verses 26 through the end of the chapter. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. First, in relationship to God. Notice verse 26, all sons of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Here is a climax to Paul's building argument. Look back in verse 7 of chapter 3. He refers to the church as sons of Abraham and now sons of God. God is no longer our judge who through the law condemned us and imprisoned us. Nor is he our tutor who through the law restrains us and chastises us. Rather, he is now our father who in Christ has accepted and forgiven us. Christians are entitled to the fullest inheritance imaginable. We are sons. Notice, it does not say we will be sons if we get our life together. We will be sons if we keep the law. No, you are sons. And as such, God is Father. We'll see more about that next time in chapter 4, but a few words are worth mentioning. God universal creator and king, but father of Jesus Christ and of those he adopts into his family through Christ. And we will see the blessed doctrine of adoption in chapter 4. It's hinted at here. It will be more fully spoken of in chapter 4. It's through faith that we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are all sons of God. And therefore, we have someone to call father. Someone to care for us with tender affection and discipline. And someone to provide for us, not only here and now, but provide an unspeakable and eternal inheritance. Remember a moment ago, we together prayed the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And it starts, Our Father. Our Father. J.I. Packer in Knowing God says that Father is the Christian name for God. Jesus could have chosen any number of words to use, but he said, Our Father. And Paul is just unpacking and beginning to articulate that great truth. Now, we need to make a few comments about the use of the word sons. Paul whether you realize it or not, is actually quite radical and revolutionary here. How? Because up until about 200, 250 years ago, inheritance rights belonged only to sons and not daughters. Some of you may be fans of Jane Austen. You may remember Pride and Prejudice and others. Remember, the daughters had to get married. Why? They had no inheritance. That was biblical society early on, and that was the case in much of Western society, not to mention the rest of the world. Calling all of us sons, Paul is making the point. Paul is not a chauvinist in the least, but rather, in the best sense, he is a feminist in that he promotes full recognition of the gifts and status of women in Christ. 
if we are too quick to correct biblical language, if we think we know better, then we're going to miss the radical and revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying about what it means to be in Christ. A few translations out there say children, but it is clearly sons. And before we move on, I mean, think about biblical language. What is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. Men, you are the bride of Christ. Women, you are the bride of Christ. Paul is making a point. You are all sons of God. And here we see the doctrine of union with Christ. Paul will, will expand this, especially in Ephesians. And as we read, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. Here Paul speaks of baptism. And Paul is going to be consistent with his theology. He, he's been speaking about being justified by faith, not circumcision nor baptism. It's faith that secures the union. Baptism is going to signify it outwardly invisible. It is, as we've been talking for the past couple of weeks down in the Sunday school class, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Paul is making a theological point here. Coming to faith in Christ, receiving the Spirit, being baptized into Christ, all belong together. It represents the language of union and participation. It's expressive of our union with Christ by faith. Notice he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have you thought about that? Put on Christ. Wear Christ as we would a garment. In Christ, a robe has replaced rags, as it were. Now, children, I might need your help here. Why do we wear clothes? Why do we wear clothes? Well, one thing is a cl clothing tells people who we are. It's like a uniform. A team wears a uniform. It's, the, the clothes make the man, the, the uniform makes the team Paul is saying in this expression that our primary identity is in Christ. Clothing tells people who we are. In Christ tells people who we are. And also our clothing is closer than any other thing. Think about it. What comes between you and your clothing? Not much else, does it? Here it's expressive of our closeness in our relationship with Christ. There's, uh, into Christ, have put on Christ. Have put on Christ like a garment. Because without clothing, thirdly, what are we? You can say it, children. We're naked without clothing. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ before the Lord. I think it's... Um, uh, the hymn um, that we sing, a naked to thy bosom fly, clothe me, Lord, or I die. Rock of ages. So here is our relationship to God. In addition to having this new relationship with God, we also have a new relationship with one another. Look at me as I read verse 28 
again. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. First, who we are in relationship to God. And now who we are in relationship to one another. We are all one in Christ Jesus. One person. We belong to each other in a way so as to render of no account things that normally distinguish us. Things like culture, class, and gender. Regarding culture or race, he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And what's the big issue in the Galatian church? Gentiles coming into the church. Do Gentiles have to become fully Jewish in order to to, uh, be right with God? Because the false teachers, remember, had been saying it's not that faith in Christ is not necessary. It's faith in Christ is not enough. It's the not enough part that Paul is is vehemently, aggressively opposed to. But not only culture is there no no, doesn't matter anymore, but class, neither slave nor free. Your, Your economy doesn't matter anymore. And then he goes on to talk about gender, neither male nor female. A strong barrier of the day as an old Jewish prayer from a man said, God, thank you that I'm not, what, a Gentile, a a dog, or a woman. That was one of the Jewish man's prayers. These distinctions are still present, but they're no longer dominant. They exist, but they don't matter. They're there, but they don't create barriers. And because of that, we no longer have the need to either despise one another or patronize one another. The distinctions continue to exist, but they do not divide us, Paul is saying. Now, you've also got to remember, Paul is going to be consistent with himself. And so in other places, think Ephesians. He's going to rightly say, This is the woman's role in marriage. This is the man's role in marriage. This is the woman's role in church. This is the man's role in church. Paul is saying that in Christ there is unity. There are differences and distinctions, but they don't matter to the extent to divide us. And what is the conclusion in this thing of going between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female? That everyone is one in Christ Jesus. Because the gospel, Paul is saying, leads to unity. How? Because the gospel is good news. It creates unity through the great privileges we share. All sons of God. The gospel is good news. It creates unity because the blessing comes unmerited. He's reminding us of Abraham. That that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not Abraham worked, and at the end of his successes, he was credited with righteousness. My friends, the gospel shows up all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when the promise is made to provide for us what we could never provide for ourselves. Because this blessing comes unmerited, there is no longer, there can no longer be pride in culture or race or status or gender. Why? Because you're saved by grace, not where you came from, not how much money you've got. You're saved by grace. 
Not only in Christ are we related to God and to one another, but we're also related to history. We see this in verse 29. And if you are, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. Here we find our place in the unfolding purposes of God. Christian history or history is linear. It is not circular. History is going somewhere. He has already moved from Abraham in verse 6 of chapter 3 and now he's brought us back to Abraham. The Judaizers were right about there being one people of God but they were wrong about the entrance requirements and about the requirements of how to stay in, as it were. Now, most of us have probably heard that expression, the right side of history, right? It's been popular over the last few years. We hear about the importance of being on the right side of history, and um, the definition is uh, having policies or practices that are perceived to be progressive or enlightened, behaving in a manner that reflects being up to date, or having the approved opinions. Because, you know, if you hold to biblical truth and fidelity, you're told of being on the wrong side of history. You know, behind the times, out of date, out of touch. But according to Paul, according to God's word, the Christian is truly the one who is on the right side of history. Heirs according to the promise that God has made, that God has kept. Who are we? Well, God's Word tells us where we live and where we're going to live. God's Word tells us who we are. The Scriptures declare who we are as well as letting us know why we are who we are. We are the people of faith in the promise And as people in Christ, we find our place in three areas. In eternity, as sons of God, we're no longer condemned but forgiven. We are welcomed by the Father now and will be in His presence forever. It's an everlasting relationship. God will always be our Father and we will always be His sons. But also we are in society. With one another, we are brothers and sisters in the same family. Divisions are negated. Barriers are brought down. Not only in eternity, not only in society, but in history as the succession of God's people through the ages. We have stepped into the same river that has flowed from the beginning. Our text, again, is full of Jesus Christ. He is the dominant theme But there's an accent on the expression, all one, when talking about God's people. So let's conclude with two words. First, a word about unity. God is building a new humanity through the church. And our relationships with one another is based on our relationship with Christ. This is important. How we relate to one another in the church is based on our relationship with God. It's not because a number of us like fly fishing. It's not a number of us like cars or sewing or live in the same cul-de-sac 
or eat at the same restaurant or work at the same place. That is not the basis of our unity. Our unity is in Christ. And my friends, churches are going to be tested in this area, and grace and peace is no exception. Is our unity in Christ? My friends, if our unity is in Christ, yeah, we'll have spats. Yeah, we'll have disagreements. Think marriage. Think friendships. Think this family. But our unity is in Christ, and Christ provides the way to resolve problems and differences and move forward. Why? Because we're in Christ. Paul opposed the Judaizers so strongly because they were drawing boundaries within the church. You know, we're the left side people and you're the right side people. We're the people who do this and you're the people who do that. No. Paul is saying no. So it's not only a word about unity as an accent, but second and finally, it's a word about fellowship. The best and truest fellowship. In it we are recognized, we recognize our diversity. But we see it as less important than our unity in Christ. Yes, look around, we are all different. Praise God for our differences. But those differences don't dominate. Christ dominates. We are not identical. But Paul is saying we are all one. Because, my friends, two Christians have more in common than your best friend, unbelieving neighbor who does everything just like you. Two Christians have more in common because they have Christ. May grace and peace continue to display and make known the manifold wisdom of God in bringing together Jew and Gentile, making the two one, bringing together a vast group of different people and bringing them together and uniting them by faith in Christ. And in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate a fellowship meal, a family meal. And we approach the table united to one another in love Because we are united by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us who we are and why we are who we are through this passage. We thank you that we are all sons of yours through faith in Christ. We are all one despite differences. There is a unity, and we have a relationship with history. We are, by your grace and your grace alone, on the right side of history. That's no reason for arrogance, but a reason for great humility and thankfulness. Oh, Father, be pleased to continue to fan the flames that we have here of unity in Christ as we continue to grow as a as the people of the promise, people of faith in the promise. And we thank you, Father, that the prom- your promise is most clearly displayed in the person and work of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.